Uh, there was a, a little boy was sick on Palm Sunday, and uh, he, so he stayed home from church because of a strep throat. And when the rest of the family came home, they were carrying the palm branches. And the little boy looked and asked, hey, well, what are those palm branches for? And the father says, well, you see, when, when Jesus came to town, everybody would wave palm branches to honor him. And so we got palm branches today in church. And of course, the little boy's choked, right? Wouldn't you know it? The one Sunday I don't go, Jesus shows up. So I'm just throwing it out there, you know. Let's pray. God, in this sacred space, in these moments of stillness, our, our thoughts and silence are like incense. Holy God, whose glory touches and transfigures the mind and the material, whose intimate, gentle spirit embraces our vulnerability and fills our empty spaces with hope, may we know the deep calm that only you can give today. So come and fill us with your spirit, is my prayer. And may everything thought, everything spoken, and everything felt be blessed by you. Amen. Um, just want to draw your attention to the joy baskets and giving, and uh, we just encourage you to uh, continue to do so as an act of worship uh, here at Seoul if you're our guest today. We don't take up an offering, we just have two baskets, and we believe that uh, you need to be prepared in your heart what to give when you show up on a Sunday, and we just want to encourage you to do so. Um, if you're a text to giver, we've changed our text to give, uh, just to give you the heads up on that, and... Uh, Everything else is pretty self-explanatory. If you want to give at the welcome station, you can do that as well. So just want to throw that out there and a reminder that on Easter Sunday, we take up a, an offering over and above what goes on. And this year, we're give, sending it off to the Ukraine. And uh, I just got an, uh, an email or actually a message here uh, from uh, Prashagas in the, well, they're right now in Moscow, but they were in the Ukraine. And it says this, he goes, when Elena and I were in Lviv, and this is Alexander's Prashaga, he's the uh, overseer of both the Russian Assemblies of God and Ukrainian Assemblies of God. He goes, we talked about the fact that in Ukraine, listen carefully, children have nowhere to go after finishing at an orphanage. The government does not support them. The majority of these children become victims of human trafficking, drug and alcohol addiction, crime, etc. Next to Moldova, Ukraine is number two in human slavery. I had no clue on that one until he told me this this week. We developed an idea to create a transition house, an IT college where young people would have an opportunity to receive a specialty of IT technology and basic Christian knowledge. They would be able to go through the uh, We Plus program, which is their youth program, and the Alpha course, attend and participate in youth camp and meet people from the church. Upon completion of a one-year program, we will help them find a job, or if they wish, to apply to go to university. The pastor of the church in Lviv, his name is Sergei, by the way, like most every other Ukrainian, um, found a building that fully meets our needs. It's 35 kilometers away from Lviv. It's about uh, 600 square meters and uh, has a 0.23 hectares of property. I have no clue what that is, but some of you do. It has infrastructure, water, electricity, etc. It is next to a large school district, football field, and sports equipment, uh, soccer field. Sports equipment are located nearby. The building needs to be remodeled, but it's priced very low, 25,000 USD. To ensure that this building won't be sold to somebody else, we left a deposit of $5,000 USD. Now we go through a process of preparing a transaction and registering the land. We believe that this project is from God and can impact the lives of hundreds of young people. So... If you're going to be giving at Easter Sunday, this is what we want to help them out. So they're going to be taking kids who are getting out from the orphanages. What literally happens is once they turn 18, they're kicked out the door. They have no place to go. There's no transition. There's no social support. And that's where the uh, human traffickers, the, the, the sex crime guys, that, they're, they're waiting for these kids. And uh, there's just no place for them. And so the Ukrainians you know, want to be able to have a, a transition. And... Uh, uh, this is where our uh, generosity will be going. So highly encourage you to continue supporting what we do here, but also that you would think about giving over and above. And uh, 
let's bless uh, another side of the world because we are about missions. We are about the kids. We are about moving forward. In ancient times, as you heard, palm branches. <laughs> I didn't know how this was going to go over, and my inner Shrek was getting a hold of me. I'm sure many of you picked up on that, eh? And, uh, you know, I heard that crazy Shrek movie. I don't know how many times we went on vacation, and that was the, the calming effect for our kids, right? You know, but uh, they symbolized goodness. They symbolized victory. They symbolized peace. Uh, they were depicted on coins. You would find them on buildings, uh, Solomon had palm branches uh, carved into the walls and the doors of the temple as a uh, symbol of beauty and elegance. In the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, it's interesting when we read that, it says, after I, this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. My wife wouldn't let me wear white today because it's... Yeah, she wouldn't let me wear it. I was going to support the Jets. And of course, you know, Revelation, dear. It says that we were supposed to wear white. And holding palm branches in their hands. Sounds interesting. Again, culturally, we just don't get it, do we? You know, many Christian denominations, uh, their worship services on Palm Sunday include a procession of believers uh, having given palm branches when they come into church. Many Protestant churches right? Uh, children are given palms and then walk in a procession in the vicinity of the church while the adults remain seated. Like it sounds familiar. Do you, you see where I'm getting at? Some Roman Catholic churches, Palm Sunday is commemorated by a solemn procession of the clergy, the assistants, the choir, then followed by the congregation into the church. The mass then is focused on the blessings of the palms by the priests, which are then saved and then later burned and used the following Ash Wednesday services for the ash that they would put on their heads or their hands. Some communities will reenact Jesus's triumphal entry in a procession of their own. Uh, in the Philippines, there's a procession where there's a statue of Christ seated on a donkey uh, that is, is carried, and a local priest actually rides a horse, uh, and they do this procession towards a local church. The rest of the community is given palm branches, and they celebrate. And once the palm branches are blessed uh, by the priest, they take them back home, and they hang them up either on their doorways or even on their window frames to signify who they are and their faith in Christ. And so as a church, you know, we've been journeying through the last 40, you know, through 40 days of Lent. We're building up to the horror of the cross, which we call here Bad Friday, but also the joy of the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And Palm Sunday actually marks an important turning point of that journey, which is the start of uh, Jesus' final week in Jerusalem, the last five days before his crucifixion. And I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm hearing a tinging on stage. I don't know if you guys hear that. And so the significance of Palm Sunday must never be forgotten. We can't, but we don't get it. Right? We don't get it. Our kids, they don't get it. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem is this triumphal entry because he began to fulfill his mission on earth. Here, now. What was that? Well, it was to suffer. It was to die as a sacrifice for sin. His ministry is now no longer private. Well, it was never private. Well, if you remember, he kept telling people to be quiet about him. You know, Matthew chapter 12, verse 16, don't tell anybody. But now he enters into Jerusalem and he wants people to know. He wants them to shout praise and to worship him openly. And he wants the world to hear. It was a big change in Jesus's ministry strategy. And because, as we will all see, his death is triumphant over sin, and his resurrection is the victory over the grave. No mere mortal ever accomplished such a thing. No human ever had such a victorious beginning to his reign, you know, which is why all human kings died and returned to dust. But Jesus Christ, our Lord, alive forevermore because his, triumphant conquered, his triumph conquered death. So Palm Sunday... Therefore, was when Jesus is openly declaring to the people that he was their king and the Messiah that they had been waiting for. 
Now, some commentators actually feel that there was probably about 100,000 extra people visiting Jerusalem during this time because it was the start of Passover. And so when Jesus makes this entry, there's people everywhere. All four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, include this narrative. This is actually a pivotal narrative in all the writings, but each of them has their own little twist on the story. In uh, Matthew's version, it says that the, the procession turns the whole city into turmoil. Now, the Greek word for turmoil is where we get our, our English root word seismic. So this is what he's saying. The city is trembling as Jesus approaches. People are asking, who is this? What's going on? There's this energy that's happening here. And this isn't the first time that Jesus uh, has this city stirred up. Because if we go back to his birth, Jerusalem got all stirred up when the wise men who show up after his birth, start walking through the streets, inquiring, asking the simple question, where is he that is born the king of the Jews? Turn the city upside down. But during this time, this excitement is far greater and, and, and more general in aspect. It's Passover, there's people coming from everywhere, and the Romans are probably expecting some sort of public uprising might come. And so they're all on red alert. And the Pharisees themselves, you know, the guys, the guys who didn't care for Jesus too much, they're, they're stirred up even more with their envy and their hatred over the popularity of Jesus. And so the entire population is, is probably looking forward to the idea that there's hope ahead and there's this energy coming and what's going on. And so the story begins with huge expectations, which are actually easy for us to miss because we miss it culturally. Jesus, according to the text, has just been in Bethany, which is really close to Jerusalem. You know, it's where he resurrected his friend Lazarus. And if you go back to our previous podcast, you could see that he was setting people free and healing the blind and doing all this as he's coming towards Jerusalem. And I'm pretty sure that Lazarus' own eyes had barely adjusted to the sunlight. And, you know, the story is spreading throughout all the region. And hearing the stories, the crowds begin to react. There's this rumor mill going on out there. And they begin now to have these high expectations. They begin to predict how maybe God might act in their lives based on the way that God has acted before. Is God going to step up? Is God going to intervene? Is God going to set us free? Is God going to heal us? Is God going to give us a deliverer? Will he work a miracle? Is this Jesus, God's guy? Will he expel the occupiers and resurrect God's people and God's city? You know what? I think it's party time. Woohoo! And so the palm branches begin to signal the crowd's high expectations. It's a celebration, it's a symbol largely lost on those of us who are separated from the culture of the story. Yeah, Jewish history tells us that there was a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus. He, you know, that's where you get the book Maccabees. He was a freedom fighter. He entered into to Jerusalem about 200 years prior to Jesus. And when he approached, people waved palm branches. People began to sing hymns. And when Judas finally arrived, he defeated the Syrian king at the time. He recaptured the temple. It was, he expelled the pagans. He got rid of them. And, and he reigned, the, the reign was for about a century before the Romans came back and took over the city again. So culturally, the Jewish people know what's going on. There, there's something that they can pin back to a couple hundred years previous. God had saved his people from an occupier once before when an uncommon guy trotted into town. With a new sheriff now, seemingly on the horizons, their expectations kick in and they begin predicting another takeover. Woohoo! Right? Something's going to happen. So you got to imagine the song uh, of their declaration that was going on. Hosanna to the son of David. This is, we don't get it, but this is what was going on. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so this is a song that the Jews would sing um, at the beginning of Passover. Everybody's familiar with it. It's taken from Psalm 118. 
It's one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. And it tells of the enemy swarming in like bees, driving the psalmist to the brink of destruction. But then God comes in. He sweeps in with a mighty hand. He wipes out the enemy. Just great, awesome church stuff. And the word Hosanna means, Lord, save now. There's an immediacy to it. And so now Jesus is coming. People are talking. There's this celebration. The word's getting out. They're asking Jesus, drive out the enemy army. Restore order to Jerusalem, to our nation. This is what's going on. Now, even the donkey plays a role. It plays a role in elevating the expectations as it it points back to an image from a passage that's in the Old Testament found in Zechariah 9.9. That many people... Many of the people at that time, they knew, they heard before, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly, and riding on a donkey. So here comes Jesus on his donkey. And that night, you can imagine, probably after the the parade and everything was going on, that across Jerusalem, the Jews are, are likely discussing the day, discussing what they participated in, discussing what they saw. You know, is this the king we've been waiting for? Is this the guy? You know, he was riding on a donkey. He's fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah. And so we got to think about it. By the time that Jesus mounted that donkey and descended into the Jerusalem, their expectations, their expectations of Jesus would have been in overdrive. You ever have those? You ever have expectations of overdrive? Philip Yancey in his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he described Palm Sunday this way, and I'm going to read it to you. It'll be up on the screen. Scream. Screen. The triumphal entry has about an aura of ambivalence as I read all the accounts together. And what stands out to me now is the slapstick nature of the affair. I imagine a Roman officer galloping up to check out the disturbance. He has attended processions in Rome where they do it right. The conquering general sits in a chariot of gold with stallions uh, straining at the reins and spiked wheels flashing in the sunlight. Behind him, officers in polished armor display banners captured from vanquished armies. At the rear comes a ragtag possession of slaves and prisoners and change Chains, living proof of what happens to those who defy Rome. That's a party. That's a parade. In Jesus' triumphal entry, the adorning crowd makes up a ragtag procession. The lame, the blind, the children, peasants from Galilee and Bethany. So when the officer looks for the object of their affection or attention, he spies a forlorn figure, weeping. Riding on no stallion or chariot, but on the back of a baby donkey. Borrowed coat draped across its backbone, serving as a saddle. And I, I, I love that line, a forlorn figure on the back of a baby donkey. You know, great conquerors would come riding in on a prancing horse in victory. But Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, which signifies he came to declare peace. Have you ever thought about the donkey's perspective on all this? That was one of the reasons why I wanted to read that book to the kid. They, you know, there are a few stories that are written from a donkey's perspective. And, and maybe, you know, for you adults, I know you enjoyed the story earlier. So allow me to read you another one, shall we? <laughs> it was the next morning after the triumphal entry. It was probably the most exciting day of his life. Never before had he felt a rush of pleasure and pride. He carried a human and he was the center of attention. Donkey made his way to the well to get some fresh water that morning and he sees people standing there and they're going on with their day. He struts in, but nobody notices him. They went on drawing their water. They paid no attention to Donkey. Now Donkey's a little frustrated and is waiting for the cheers and the accolades from the humans, but it doesn't come. He looks at the people and he thinks to himself, don't you know who I am? My personal favorite line. But they just carried on with their day. And then a human slapped him across the tail, ordered him to move. Miserable humans, he thought to himself. I'll just go to the market where the good people are. They'll remember me. But the same thing happened. No one paid attention to the donkey as he strutted down the main street of the marketplace 
The palm branches. Where are the palm branches, he thought. Yesterday, you threw palm branches. So now he's hurt. He's confused. Donkey returns home to his mother. Sad, upset. Mother says, oh, child. Don't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? The first thing that we can learn from the donkey this morning is that it's not about us. The donkey may have thought everything that was going on around him was all about him, but actually, it was all about the one that he carried. And it's a fine line that we as believers that we walk when you begin to think about it, realizing that we don't follow Christ in order to be happy, in order to be successful, or in order to be popular. We follow Christ down that road. We follow him carrying our own crosses. Matthew 16, Jesus says, If anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And I think we often forget about that part of the gospel. You know, we're happy to follow Jesus when he's healing people, right? When he's feeding people, when we see Jesus is doing all that. And even when he's, he's teaching about the kingdom, we saw that earlier as we walked through Matthew. It's easy to follow Jesus when our prayers are answered, are they not? And when our life is moving forward along the plan that we have for it. But when things go wrong, when our plans are not his plans, when, when prayers are maybe not answered, what, what happens? We, we begin to lose trust and we begin to complain. And the road to the cross is one where really we have to learn to give up our own agenda and to follow his. The, the donkey had no say in where he would carry Jesus. And this little donkey, according to scripture, has never been ridden before and was probably being typically stubborn. That would have been only normal. But yet, when you think about the story, he meekly carries Jesus eventually to die. You know, the world, when we look at it, it says everything around us is all about us, right? Look at our advertising slogans. I'm loving it. McDonald's, right? right? Obey your thirst. Sprite. Um, just do it. Come on. Right. Adidas. Uh, okay. Because you're worth it. L'Oreal. All right, the lady's got it. Thank you. Uh-huh. Because you're worth it. You know, do I need to continue? Obviously not. And yet Jesus says the opposite. Jesus says the opposite. He points to himself and he says, I am the way. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. And so actually when we look at it, it's really all about him and who we are when we're with him. And just like the donkey, we are most fulfilled when we are in his service. But without him, you know, scripture says all of our best efforts are like filthy rags and really amount to nothing. You know, uh, however, when we lift up Christ, we are no longer ordinary people, but rather when we connect with them, we become key players in God's plan to reach the world around us. And it's just like the, the donkey's mother replied to him, don't you realize that without him, you're just an ordinary donkey? And so, so too, our significance and worth comes from the fact that we know Jesus, that we carry him around. So if you're a believer here this morning, and you're sitting beside another believer. Look at them in their eyes and say, you're a donkey. Go ahead, just do it. Because <laughs> as believers, we're carrying Jesus around. <laughs> but you can almost imagine the conversation between the mother donkey and the little one where the next question that the kid's going to ask is, but why me then? Why me, mom? Why me? And, and her response would have to be simple because you're the chosen one. You know, again, it's not about us. God still chooses to use us. Think about that. God chooses to use you. 
This little donkey was simply available, and Jesus had chosen him before the time, right? Because he predicts it in the passage that you heard read earlier today. This little donkey was available. Jesus had chosen him. And when we read the scriptures, Jesus knew where that donkey was. He knew that that donkey would be available. Jesus knew that this donkey would be used for a purpose, interesting enough. And amazingly, God knew this in well advance too, because 550 years earlier, Zechariah had prophesied about this little donkey. God had a plan that this donkey was selected by God to play a part in his plan to bring Jesus into Jerusalem. That just sort of makes your head go, right? And so God selects us too. John 15 says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. He chooses you. Ephesians 2.20, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works for which God prepared in advance for us to you. He's got a plan for you. He has chosen you. We know nothing about the donkey. Whether it had been named by the children of the household, we don't know any of that. Whether the owners were rich and had many other donkeys, or whether this mother in full was the most treasured present, we don't know any of that. The incredible thing about this plan is that God had known, and that it resulted in us actually, when you think about it now, talking about this little donkey some 2,000 years later. See, God, too, has chosen you and me for a role in his big plan, in his bigger plan, and the plan he has to bring his kingdom to earth. You and I, as believers, we have a part, a plan that will involve lifting up the name of Jesus, a plan that will bring light to a dark city or a dark country or to reconciliation for the broken and for those who need it, a plan of justice to the forgotten and to the orphan, a plan of hope to the lost. We're part of that. Do I get woohoo? Yay! Like that's part of the plan that we're part of. That's what our faith is all about. And while we, like the donkey, may think that we're insignificant, when carrying Jesus, we're involved in something significant. Have you ever considered that, that you know, what God was doing riding a donkey? The creator of everything that breathes, that moves, the one who calls out the stars, who knows them all by name, the one who created the universe is sitting on the back of a little Shrek, right? It blows my mind. It blows my mind because I think we have to look at the scripture from another way and realize that if God can use a little donkey in the triumphant accomplishment of his plan and in the fulfillment of ancient prophecy in carrying the creator, then maybe, just maybe, he's got a plan for me and you, and he can use me and you too. And I think there's a whole lot that we can learn from this little donkey. And the first thing, it's not about us, really. It's God chooses to lift up Jesus. He uses us to spread his love and to speak his truth and to make a difference in the world in which he places us. And while we don't know the mind of animals, right, obviously, if I was the donkey, <laughs> I don't ever think I would forget that day. I, I, I walked through Jerusalem carrying the creator of the world on my back. And the amazing truth, though, is that we have this awesome privilege of walking through the world and carrying Jesus everywhere we go. We do. Back to our text. The beginning of the entry is this great celebration, celebrating that he was the king of the Jews. They shout, they praise him, they lay down their palm leaves. It's, you know, it's like rolling out that red carpet for the king. This crowd, like I said earlier, composed of pilgrims who are coming to the festivals of the day. The energy is incredibly electrifying. You know, they voluntarily wanted to make this carpet over which the Savior would pass. 
And I'm pretty sure we could feel the excitement of the crowd as they, they went ahead of Jesus and shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. This, this same Jesus was the one who raised Lazarus from the dead and gave sight to the blind. When they, they heard that he's in the neighborhood, they wanted to meet him. They wanted to give him honor. They wanted to see what it was all about. And so people are going and the noise is happening. The crowds are crying out and, and they don't really get it. If you've never heard the term Hosanna before, don't worry. There's no worries about that. You're in the right place right now. Again, culturally, we miss it. Hosanna is a real powerful um, exclamation. It means save us now. Save us now. And as I said earlier, it comes from Psalm 118. And that passage, in fact, the Psalms 113 to 118 are called the Hillel Psalms. And these Psalms were all sung at uh, all the major festivals in Jerusalem. So if you were a good Jew, you knew these songs. You knew them by heart. You didn't need the PowerPoint on the screen. You knew them by heart. And the words then would have been well known by every common person, much like Christmas carols. Can I make that allusion to? Um, there's no doubt in the minds of the people that this Jesus was their Messiah. No doubt. No doubt in their minds that he is now the heir to the throne of David. This is confirmed by their exclamation, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In Psalm 118, that the sentence is a blessing for the king who led the people into procession to go to the sanctuary to offer praises to God. But it, it, it came to be a praise to God for the coming of the Messiah. And so Jesus had been widely recognized by his followers as the coming one, the chosen one. And so when the people begin to repeat Hosanna, to God in the highest, they're praising God for sending their Messiah, the Savior of Israel. This is the Savior of Israel. They're shouting, Hosanna, it's a plea for help, really. That's how they articulate it. It's, as, as, it's almost like yelling, stop. It, it, it has that kind of emphasis on it. You know, somebody's about to throw something at you, you know what that's like, stop. Like, you know, uh, that's the impact. It's an act of surrender, save us. And so in moments like this, we realize we can't save ourselves, right? When you're telling somebody to stop, don't, you can't save yourself. We need intervention. And that's what they're asking for. And these people were not talking about salvation in the terms that maybe we do today on a Sunday morning like this, but rather they're expecting Jesus to lead a rebellion against an oppressive Roman government. That's their expectations. Now, when you look at this picture, it's like the coronation of the king. When you know, we can see those watching on TV. We have a man coming on the back of a horse, but in our case, a donkey, right? People are waving their palm branches. They're like, hey, this is a leader who can save us. woo yay. This is where our hope has been placed. We're putting it all on him. He's here. He's coming to the throne. And surely this jives with the rhythm of Jesus when you think about it, his life, what he's been teaching about. Um, you know, throughout all of his life. And now they're seeing this all come together. In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus is declared king at his birth. He's anointed as king. He's empowered by the Holy Spirit for his kingly mission in Ma uh, Matthew chapter 3. He's recognized as a king in his ministry by his disciples in John chapter 1. His enemies call him king in John 19. He himself uh, calls himself a king in Luke 23. If we're going to go back into our podcast, Jesus' teachings on the parables are all about what? The kingdom of God, which he has brought and is at hand. The miracles of Jesus are about power of the kingdom breaking through the fallenness of this present darkness. And what we see here is that Jesus' entire ministry is about this announcement of the kingdom of God. And so now on Palm Sunday, we have Jesus heading towards the temple. Where are kings enthroned? Where is the coordination? It happens where? In the temple. And you have Jesus coming through town, the crowd shouting, Hosanna, son of David, woo, woo, blessed is he who comes, you know, they're heading towards the temple. He hopes, uh, the hopes of the people of God are stirred. Here we have Palm Sunday. King Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, looks to be on the cusp of being enthroned. Everybody is losing their minds. That's why this parade is going on. They're taking off their outer garments, right? It says they're taking off the robes. They're putting it on the ground. They're screaming, Hosanna, save us now because Jesus is going to be enthroned. He's on his way to the temple. This is it. The kingdom of God is now going to fill the earth. God is coming in. We're going to get rid of those evil ones. They're going to be defeated. But of course, we know that these praises didn't last long. 
Why? Well, primarily is that the people fail to recognize Jesus as the Savior from their sins. They welcomed him out of a desire for a military leader to lead them in a revolt against Rome. And there were too many people during that time who really just didn't believe in Jesus as their Savior. Nevertheless, they hoped, well, he's not my Savior, you know, he's not here to forgive my sins, but, you know, he, he's going to be a great political deliverer. That's, that's my hope. So there are those who hail him as king with their hosannas, recognizing him. Yes, he is the son of David. Yes, he comes in the name of the Lord, but he fails their expectations. When he refused to lead them in a massive revolt against the Roman occupiers. When he refuses that, the crowds quickly turn against him. And just in a matter of a few days, their hosannas change to the cries of crucify him. Those who were hailing him as a hero would soon reject and abandon him. And, and crazy enough, this is actually how our human hearts act. The Bible says that man is sinful and the heart is very deceptive. Who knows it, right? The unthinkable happens. Even though it shouldn't, it it shouldn't have been unthinkable. It's everywhere. But you and I have the privilege of looking backwards when we read the stories where we see Jesus is arrested. He endures multiple trials. Many of those trials are actually illegal according to the law of the day. He's brutally beaten. And then he's murdered. So how are we to make sense of this long line of King Jesus ending up nailed to a Roman cross being belittled, mocked, scorned by the very people Christ has come to rule. What kind of a king goes to a cross? Like, no, 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 no. Kings send people to crosses, right? They don't go to crosses. So what's happening here? Maybe if you are somewhat like me and you try to put yourself in a story when you're reading it, Maybe you're kind of going, well, you know, if I was there, maybe not the donkey, but one of the people, uh, that wouldn't have been me. You know, I, I wouldn't have turned my back. Well, let me remind you that the crowds that we read of in the scripture are not very much different from you and me. I spent my whole life in churches, small, large alike. I've gone from rock bands to pipe organs and back and forth again. But I cannot think of one church that hasn't projected expectations onto God. So work with me here. So maybe you picture God as a heavenly servant whose job it is to satisfy all your deepest desires. Or perhaps God is a holy matchmaker who will secure you a spouse. Or maybe God is a cosmic bodyguard who protects you from harm. Or maybe God is the world's best nanny, right? Making sure that your children turn out right. Or maybe your projection of God is a divine doctor healing your every physical and mental ailment. Or maybe your projection of God is a wonder-working accountant solving all your financial problems, you know, provided that you drop off at least 10% in the joy basket, of course. <laughs> See, people tend to assume that God is the deity that they want. And all you have to do, and what people do, is they just find a couple of verses that seem to support their preferred version. And then you spend a few years trying to find a certain pastor to reinforce them through selective storytelling. And before you know it, the cement of those assumptions actually end up drying and you begin expecting God to work in particular ways in your life. So you have a formation of who you think God is and how you believe God must work. Not unlike the people of Jerusalem when Jesus is walking in that day. And it works pretty well. You can get through life pretty well as long as God seems to do what we want him to do. Are you tracking with me today? But the moment that God doesn't conform to our expectations, 
our whole world is shaken. A baby is stillborn. A baby is born with a disability. A person you love abandons you for somebody else. A friend, a loved one dies before their time. And then the expectations that you placed on God now begin to ferment to distrust and mold into disappointment and disillusionment. Right? Anne Lamont says, expectations are resentments under construction. Expectations are resentments under construction. So what are the lessons that God wants to teach us? When we look at Palm Sunday... See, many of us have a common experience when it comes to spirituality. We expect God to be something, right? We all have expectations of what we expect God to be and then discover that he's not at all like that. Or we expect God to do something only to realize that he seems to have his own priorities. And so in those moments, a tsunami-sized wave of disappointment now comes crashing down over us. And Palm Sunday actually shows this transition from expectation, Hosanna, to disappointment. Crucify him. This triumph becomes a trial. The trial becomes an execution. Jesus enters the city on the donkey, but we know he's going to leave in a body bag. This is not a coronation that Jesus is walking in on. He's walking on death row. And here we have a picture of what happens to a group of very religious people when they feel disappointed by God. And at the start, the crowds embrace Jesus and they shout, save us now. And maybe you can relate to that in your own spiritual walk. But as soon as Jesus turns out to be something other than the Savior they expect or put on him, their hosannas morph into crucify him. Jesus is a king, but he's not the king they wanted. He will serve rather than be served. He will die and not... uh, He enters unarmed. He comes in waging peace. Which makes actually a larger point that God doesn't intend to meet our expectations. Instead, God intends to meet our needs. God doesn't intend to meet our expectations. He intends to meet our needs. And to be honest, this type of God, actually, when I think about it, it makes me feel uncomfortable because I don't want vegetables when I'm craving candy. I want a God that satisfies my desires. This is how I'm made. Satisfy my desires. Whether or not they actually align within my needs. And that's how it is with all of us. We, we welcome God into our lives with anticipation, with expectation. We're laying down cloaks. We're laying, you know, waving palm branches with all we got. But when God turns out to be someone we don't recognize, we scatter like dust in the wind. And one of the most interesting features of this story is how much preparation Jesus actually does ahead of time. He lines everything up, making sure to trigger the crowd's expectations. It's almost like he hired a PR agency indicating that he knows exactly what he's stirring up. But why is he doing this? The bandit can come up. You know, is Jesus trying to disappoint them? No. But I like what one author said. He said that he felt that Jesus was trying to disillusion them. And what he does is he actually goes on, he begins to explain that the word dissolution has gotten a bad rap in recent times, but he goes on to say that actually it's a gift, of, a gift that God gives with abundance. Disillusionment is the loss of an illusion. Think about this. It's what happens when you take a lie about the world, about yourself, about those you love, about God, 
and then you replace it with the truth. Disillusionment occurs when God shatters our fantasies, when God tears down our idols, when God dismantles our fake fronts. It occurs when we discover that God does not conform to our expectations, but rather exists as a mystery beyond our expectations. Barbara Brown Taylor in her book, God in Pain, describes disillusionment as a sacred experiences that cut us down to size and remind us of our smallness in this expansive universe. These experiences are often painful, but never bad. They make us shed the lies we've mistaken for truth. Why am I getting choked up? because I can relate because I had in my mind what I thought God's plan for my life or for our life was a fifth child so I'm putting this sermon today I can't preach a message without it hitting me personally But, you know, some of you have walked the walk with us where we lost a baby. And I always say I took it harder than you. And I think part of that was because the disillusionment I had with God. That I had created a certain expectation of how I thought God was reacting and blessing and moving in my life, only to realize that it was shattered. Barbara Brown Taylor writes, disillusioned, we find out what is not true and we are set free to seek what is if we dare. To turn away from the God who was supposed to be in order and to seek the God who is. You heard the song by Lauren Daigle today, you know, you say, the third verse says, taking all I have and now laying it at your feet, you have, every, you have every failure, God, and you have every victory. You say I am loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I'm weak. You say I'm held when I'm falling short. When I don't belong, you say I am yours. And I believe. Isn't that just the purest form? Ultimately, the triumphal entry is not about palm branches. It's not about the donkey at all it's a reminder that placing expectations on God based on our wants is a recipe for resentment but nurturing openness to divine mystery is actually our framework for faith again I'm not sure about you but I've had many a disappointment in my life I found myself blaming God but I refuse to let disillusionment and disappointment sever my relationship with God. And over time, I began to uncover and shed these illusions. And I'm I'm dismantling mirages I've constructed around myself, around my ministry. And be it productivity, be it my identity, be it my self-worth or pretending that I am is enhanced by how much I produce or finding my sense of worth in my accomplishments or accolades from other people or pretending that God will keep me healthy or heal my every ache and pain and I'm 54 years old and I hurt a lot. And I've come to a place where I've had to learn even in my own faith walk I have to trade in the lies for truth in times of difficulty. You know, God offers us his presence. He doesn't offer us a parachute to escape. And this exchange has transformed my disappointment into disillusionment. And disillusioned turned out to be a horrible yet wonderful gift. 
What we experience as disappointment is an invitation to give up holding tight to what we hope is true. To stop trying to cast God in our image. To let God be who God is, not who we wish God would be. And we struggle with that in our culture. The choice is ours, and who knows? Maybe we'll find ourselves at the foot of a cross giving up all we have had for the one who gave up everything for us. I don't know your spiritual walk. Maybe you're here today. You have a bunch of questions. Maybe I've been pressing some buttons, whatever it is. Maybe you want to talk further about God, about Jesus, about the church. Whatever it is, I simply ask that you would take out your phone today. There's a number that's going up on the screen. And when we go today, just start text. Text the word soul. We'll contact you personally. We have a pastor of pastoral care. She'll get a hold of you. We're not going to creepy stalk you. We want to walk with you. That's simply what it is. I'll guarantee you we will respond to you personally. See, because God will use others to reach out to us and he's going to show up where you're at. And it is he, it is who he is and what he does. Now, will the donkeys please stand? I need a Kleenex real bad. Does somebody have the ministry of Kleenex? Thank you. I hope it's clean and not used. I've asked the worship team to lead us. What's the name of this song? I keep forgetting. Christ be all around me. Basically the, the prayer of St. Patrick. Make this your prayer. And what are your concept of God? How is it lining up with your life? What are the disillusionments that maybe he's trying to deal with? Where do you find yourself this Palm Sunday? Friday is going to be amazing. You, I trust you have invite cards. I don't know if there's at the, the welcome desk. Have you invited somebody for Bad Friday? It's a miserable gathering. It's absolutely horrible. It is sad. It is brutal. That's what it's about. If you're an evangelical charismatic, you're not going to like Bad Friday. Why? Because we focus on the passion of the Christ. It is rich with song. It is rich with words. It is rich with scripture. It is rich with passion. And it brings us to the importance of what Easter Sunday is all about. Bring somebody. Let's sing this as our prayer today. Nation Nine, the one who blessed, extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. Oh, so soul sanctuary, go with God's blessing today. This Palm Sunday. Go now. Not just as donkeys, but listen very carefully. Go as light bearers and carry Jesus to a dark world. Go as hope carriers into a world of despair. Go in the name of Jesus. Go in the love of God. Go in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now go and live the church and be blessed. See you next week and bring somebody. Amen.